In the 18th century, Venice was a required stop on the Grand Tour, which young European gentlemen of means enjoyed as part of their coming of age. Historian Lawrence Burgreen joins us now for a look at the city that one of the world's most recognized libertines of the time, Giacomo Casanova, called home. Lawrence, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So Casanova, I mean, he's just synonymous for a great lover and a great seducer. But he's more than that. I mean, he's an incredible personality, and and thankfully he left a massive memoir for us to learn. Give us a little thumbnail about why he is such an exceptional personality. Well, in addition to all his exploits, for which he's so well known, and which he writes about in great detail, he wrote, uh, published about 150 books and pamphlets during his lifetime, 12 volumes of memoirs, plays, a three-volume science fiction novel, political journalism, all sorts of polemics, a translation of the Iliad into hmm. Italian from Greek. So he had a huge literary output. In addition to that, he was a mathematical genius, which was part of his success as a gambler. He was a professional gambler. Oh, he was a gambler. So he it takes a lot of money to have 100 mistresses. And uh, uh, yes, he, yes. did he get most of that money from gambling? That was how he got almost all his money. And he understood the laws of probability, which was an emerging mathematical concept in his lifetime in the 18th century. And he actually managed to, when he escaped to Paris, convince the French crown to institute a lottery because they badly needed money. Using Casanova's system, which was based on a lottery in Genoa, they instituted a very successful lottery, raised money quickly. Casanova got a share of the ticket offices Hmm. around Paris and very quickly became wealthy, although he blew it on all sorts of ridiculous business adventures. But that would have empowered France, which eventually uh, overthrew the Venetian Republic, right? Yes, it's a funny story. (laughs) It's kind of comes around. Part of that money was used to finance the École Militaire, the French Military Academy in Paris. One of the first students to go there was a young Corsican named Napoleon Bonaparte. Ten years after he graduated, when he was still in his late 20s, he conquered Venice. By that time, Casanova had fled the city, and that was the end of a thousand years of the Venetian Empire. Okay, but that was the last nail in the coffin of the Venetian Republic because it was already in decline. And Napoleon didn't like Venice. He didn't like Venetians. He sent Josephine in his stead to go visit. He didn't even want to see it. But um, at that point, Venice, which had been in decline for a long time, fell easily, and uh, that was the end of it. However, the Venetian mystique endures to this day. Oh, yeah. Now, when you think of Venice, it's hard to underestimate what a power it was for centuries. I mean, a thousand years ago, it was the economic superpower in Europe. Its dollar was the dollar. And then it slowly, well, part of the problem was, uh, in fact, you wrote a book, I think, about Marco Polo and uh, all the trade that Venice got from the East. But when we have Vasco da Gama and Magellan and Columbus, you know, around the year 1500, all of a sudden the trade's gone and and Venice is just sitting on its laurels. And over time, it just becomes a city of decadence in decline. It's sort of a time warp. And talk about Venice in the 18th century it really was sort of the sin city of Europe back then. What what happens in Venice stays in Venice, right? <laughs> yes, it just became more and more ossified. It seemed caught in the Middle Ages, even as the rest of European history went on, and uh, it lost its colonies, it lost its economic prowess. It was still controlled by the same 400 families who were written down in the Golden Book, the so-called mm. Libra d'Oro, 
And uh, this was a very, very tightly knit case, which concentrated power, but also strangled Venice. You know, it was so conservative, they had to have an outlet, and maybe that's why Carnival, it's just synonymous with Venice. It is synonymous. Of course, there's Carnival in many other countries. But interestingly enough, we think of Carnival and the masks in Venice, particularly only at Carnival time. However, in Venice, by law, Venetians had to wear a special costume and masks all year round, not just a carnival, and not only outdoors, but indoors. And they were not allowed to speak to foreigners. Contact or conversations with foreigners were, by law, outlawed. Is so that it was right? a very introverted culture in Casanova's day. And you even write in your book that there were some masks that were designed for women not to talk to anybody at all. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. The woman's mask was a circular black one called a moretta. It had a button in the middle, and a woman held it between her teeth. And, of course, that way she couldn't talk. The man's mask was a rigid white one called a bauta, which was sort of scary. That's what Casanova and everybody else was wearing. This also made it possible for a lot of murder and mayhem to take place in the streets and back alleys of Venice, especially at night, and seductions when there were all these balls. And you can see pictures from Casanova's day. Everybody's there in their masks, um, oh, wow. in a ball, uh, huh. you know, indoors. It's not carnival, wearing the Venetian costume, which was a three-cornered hat and a mantle and kind of a puffy <laughs> uh, shirt or blouse. So Venetians had a very distinctive dress. It was a very, very particular part of Italy and Europe. So it sounds like these were repressed people, like oversexed Jackson boxes that were just ready to spring <laughs> open at the first excuse, the first little <laughs> private time on a gondola, and bam. Yeah. You know, gondolas then in Venice were different. They looked more or less like they do now. However, they had enclosed cabins, so they became venues for seduction. So if you were with a woman on a gondola, you would close the windows and uh, you could proceed aboard a gondola, which in fact Casanova did. Also, convents in Venice were often venues for seduction. Convents? Convents in Venice, many of them were actually harems. And the women were sent there not because they were pursuing religious vocations, but because their wealthy families, especially the 400 families who controlled Venice, wanted to make sure they didn't get married and dilute the family fortune and dilute the family bloodlines. What happened is they were kept there literally behind bars, but they would receive visitors, Casanova and many others, and especially tourists across Europe and England hmm. who would come bearing gifts and court them, and every so often they would have orgies there behind bars, or they would escape for a few hours and go to a small casino or some other building for an assignation, and then creep back to their convent. An orgy at the convent, why not? <laughs> Casanova writes about this. I was skeptical. I thought, well, this must be his superactive imagination, but I came across many other accounts of these really scandalous goings-on at Venice. Lawrence, I've time. seen paintings of these convents with all of these women that look like they're in a bordello. And it's yes, uh, in the um, Carrizonico. Don't miss the Carrizonico. It's the Museum of 18th Century Venice, and it, it yes. shows all of this stuff right out of the age of Casanova. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lawrence Bergreen, and his book is Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. When we're in Venice, we have this uh, history all around us, and there were these yes. 400 families and all of these aristocrats who really were above the normal rules and these libertines, which was the, yes. the hedonist of the day that wanted to almost be promiscuous as a declaration of independence from conservative mores. 
I've had guides take me to these kind of like aristocratic man caves. They called them casinos. Uh, the word casino yeah. comes from these little hideaways for aristocrats. Talk about the life of these aristocrats, and they would have a maybe a palace on the mainland and a little hideaway in Venice. Since Venice was so tiny, many of the aristocrats did have a mansion or a very large house on the mainland, and they went back and forth, especially around Padua. And they had their mistresses. Uh, they gambled incessantly. Casanova wasn't the only one. The main gambling area was called the Redato, which was highly popular and served as a magnet for tourists across Europe. Of course, there were the famous cafes of Venice, which also attracted a lot of tourists and had a very, very active street life and cafe life. You know, and when we're on the main square in the Piazza San Marco, you've got several of these elegant old-world cafes, and Florian's is most famous, I believe, and they're with the famous dueling orchestras, and most of the tourists sit outside to enjoy the outdoor orchestras, but I really like going inside and sitting in some of these cozy little uh, cafe rooms. And they look more or less as they did in Casanova's time. Now, it's interesting. He writes about how lively the scene was as a young person. And then he also writes how empty and deserted and sad they became after Napoleon conquered Venice when Casanova was much older. And he went back briefly to visit. And all the street life had uh, gone out of it. So Venice underwent a dramatic change in his lifetime. Venice was also a city of a lot of music. Oddly enough, Casanova disliked music, but this was the city of Vivaldi, the Red Priest as he was known, and many other composers. Music was in the air. It was the city of Commedia dell'arte, especially Galdoni, who wrote many plays that his mother, the famous actress, acted in. So there was a lot of cultural life in Venice as well. It wasn't just decadence. Uh, Lawrence, let's just talk about, as a visitor to Venice, if we want to just imagine the allure of the place, the the romance of the place in the 1700s, take us to a little spot in Venice that inspires you to go back and, and feel the moment of Casanova's time. Well, I would say anywhere along the Grand Canal, but it's not so much a place in my own mind as Venice, but it's a time of year. I was once there... And November, and it was cold, and it got dark early, and it was foggy, and it was damp. The tourists were gone. And I remember being there and walking around the streets of Venice at night when there were just a few cats running around and shadows around the corner, and you didn't know what you'd see if you walked down an alley. That's another side of Venice, which I thought was very haunting and very moody, and I've never forgotten it. I just, uh, when I think of Venice, I actually think of this moody, nighttime, foggy Venice, uh, very noir Venice, if you will. Lawrence Berggreen, fascinating book, Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.